You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with a heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. Lord Jesus, like Peter and John, we ask that you would help us and send your spirit so that we see Jesus and only Jesus. Amen. We are opening our Bibles or our bulletins, page 3, Exodus 24 is what we're going to be looking at and hearing from, hopefully being changed by, spoken to. As we hear God's word from Exodus 24, it's absolutely vital that we not only hear the broad context of the story of deliverance of the people of God from Israel, but we really need it within the context of the whole Bible, and we're going to see why in a bit. In fact, I think we might end up getting the message totally wrong if we were to just look at this isolated incident of Moses on a mountain. We need it. We need the whole Bible. And the message of today's passage is this. It's a devastating word. It's a hard word, and we have to hear it. But hang with me. The message is this. God is not a God of second chances. God is not a God of second chances. You see, God is a God of second chances might be something that you find on a cute 80s cat poster or something like that. Or maybe you might find it on some sweet meme of some lady in a wheat field with some lights beaming on her holding her hands up. But you won't find it in the Bible, actually. And though it's not obvious on the first read, that's what is going on here in Exodus. You see, we can't look at Moses going up on the mountain without seeing this moment couched in a bunch of other moments. Even if you you and I have very little Bible knowledge, we might know the story of Exodus from movies with Charlton Heston in them or something like that. The Israelites, God's people, are enslaved in Egypt. And then God raises up Moses to deliver them out of the hands of Pharaoh. God delivers them. They cross the Red Sea. They begin their journey in the wilderness. And then we hit the end of that sequence at the beginning of chapter 19 of Exodus, where Israel first arrives at the base of this historic, really important biblical mountain, the mountain of Sinai. Mount Sinai, back in chapter 19, something significant happens that we should pay attention to because the same thing happens again in our passage just before we get to our actual verses where Moses goes up the mountain. Israel camps on the mountain and they recognize that Moses is about to go up the mountain to receive God's word, particularly his law. You know, all those things that are the rules of the way the people of God should live, the do's and don'ts of being a follower of God. And before Moses goes up, the people make a vow. Moses tells the people on behalf of God, I've redeemed you out of Egypt, now follow me and do what I say. And the people respond with these words in chapter 19, verse 8. Listen to this. All that the Lord has spoken, we will do. All that the Lord has spoken, we will do. And so Moses goes up. Chapters 20 through 23 recount God giving Moses the law. And Moses comes down and we hit our chapter. Chapter 24. Verses 3 and 4 say this. Pay attention. Moses came up and told the people all the words of the Lord and the rules. And all the people answered with one voice and said, here it is again. All the words that the Lord has spoken, we will do. Moses goes back up the mountain. This time, it's on this mountain that we hit our passage. 
with the glowing face and the devouring fire, 40 days and 40 nights. And then we see after this, in chapters 25 through 31, six chapters worth of what God revealed to Moses up there in those 40 days and 40 nights. More law, a lot of law. And then Moses comes down and we hit chapter 32. Okay, so process this with me for a bit. Remember, from chapters 19 through 31, we only see the people in action two times. And in both those times, most of the story is the law God is giving to Moses on the mountain. The only narrative bits we get of the actual people of God doing something is when we hear them saying, all the words that the Lord has spoken, we will do. That statement is punctuated, not once, but twice, right? And then Moses goes up and gets more law. And then he comes down and we hit chapter 32. What happens in Exodus chapter 32? The golden calf, all right? The golden calf. The people of God make firm commitments in keeping God's law. Moses goes up and gets the law, including the second commandment, which says you should not make for yourself any graven image. Moses comes down, and what's the first thing he finds the people doing? They've made a graven image. You see, the story couldn't move any faster between the moment the people of God were passionately committing to keeping God's law And the moment they break it, crazy, isn't it? And we might be tempted to think that God is revealing himself as a God of second chances when after the golden calf, Moses and Israel kind of go through a bit of a redo. Moses goes up again, gets new tablets, more law, and comes back down again. Maybe this time, right, Israel? Maybe this time. Well, all you have to do is read Leviticus And numbers, especially numbers, to know that Israel doesn't get any better. And so again, we might be tempted to think with all these redos with Israel here, and all throughout the Old Testament with all the redos that God gives Israel, that God is a God of second chances. But we have to rewind a little bit and go back to even the first chapters of Genesis to know why God is not a God of second chances. Because that first chance, which was the only chance, was blown for us way back in the garden with Adam and Eve. Not only did Adam blow it for us, but the Bible is actually clear in places like 1 Corinthians 15 that spiritually speaking, we were there in Adam, blowing it with him. One chance, we don't get that back. And Exodus here reminds us, actually... We don't want that back. Now, it's one thing for us to sit at a distance watching Israel duffing it again and again in the wilderness with golden calves and whatnot. But what about you and me? So here's where I share with you a little bit about my story. I uh, have a huge anger problem. You know that little red dude and inside out that's inside the girl that's always exploding and turning into a ball of fire? Well, that guy probably has the wheel of my life way more than Jesus does. Are you kidding me, Zach? You're always so calm and gentle. You're so pastoral. It's all a sham. It's all a sham. My wife, Abby, will tell you that I fooled her into thinking that I was a laid-back, chilled dude. And that dude that she married, uh, only to find out of the ferocious intensity in me not long after we were married. We dated for nine months and were engaged after that, and that's not long enough to see the cracks. 
My parents told me growing up that angry men were a generational thing on both sides of my family. And when I was a kid, I had a raging, violent temper. My parents tried to channel it by putting me into sports and karate. I don't know if it helped or if it weaponized my rage. My parents tried to uh, do all that, and not only was I an angry little guy after that, but now I could employ it with deadly force, right? When I became a teenager, the Lord grabbed a hold of me, and I got serious about my faith and serious about my sin. And I remember writing in journals, Okay, God, this is where I deal with it. This is where I finally deal with my anger problem. I will beat this thing. Does that sound familiar? All the words that the Lord has spoken, we will do. And I was that sincere, too. And so I memorized all kinds of verses for the moment of temptation. I armed myself just like Jesus in the wilderness with the word of God. In your anger, do not sin. Each of you should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. A gentle spirit turns away wrath. Friends, I'm a walking concordance of anger verses in the Bible. The funny thing was, I got better for a while. Life got a little more calm. I found myself flying off the handle less. I was a gentler person. It was like there was a set of anger buttons on my chest, and they were no longer getting pushed. And so during college, I began thinking to myself, I think I've got this anger thing licked. I'm probably ready to be a husband. And then I got married. And as marriage and other intimate relationships do and friendships do that are meaningful and deep, it made me realize that I had a whole different set of anger buttons on a totally different part of my chest that I wasn't aware of. And the intimacy of marriage meant that, well, Abby was going to be pushing those buttons because that's what intimacy does. And so I began to pray, oh God, give me a second chance here. And I began to deal with those buttons. And you think I'm exaggerating, but I'm not. When Abby and I were in seminary before kids, we had to go through these character-building projects as part of our degree. And one semester, I decided it was time to deal with my anger. And so I went to see a therapist, and I worked my way through this actual physical book, the Anger Workbook. I kid you not. You're not allowed to read what's inside here. I learned anger management tactics and psychosomatic strategies. And for me, it was just another time around the horn. All the words that the Lord has spoken, we will do. And it got better for a while. Sweet, patient Abby noticed a change. And we dealt with that set of buttons. And then I had kids. Not only that, I had like a gajillion sons. I discovered a whole new set of buttons you know what? You thought a spouse could push those buttons? I had four little sets of hands just like tap, 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 all day long. It's not their fault. They're just kids. It's my fault. I've got these buttons. And as I said to God, God, I don't want this to be passed down. I don't want my sin to be visited on them. I don't want them to have to wrestle with these demons. I want this to stop right here. Another chance. All the words that the Lord has spoken, we will do. And I read those parenting books that said, don't discipline your kids in anger. And I was like, well, guess I'm not going to be disciplining my kids then. (laughs) Second chance, third chance, fourth chance, another time around the horn, same result. It wasn't going to matter how many chances I got. 
What about you? Is this hitting home for any place in your life? I know we're all at different places, but I've actually been a pastor long enough now that I know that everybody's got something. Something dark, something buried. I swore I would never get drunk again. I swore I would never hurt anyone like I hurt that person again. I swore I'd make a radical change in the way I spent money so that the grip of materialism would go away. I swore that I wouldn't go back to those websites and click through those hashtags. I swore I wasn't going to ever uh, go back to that relationship again. I was going to be done with that. I swore I would never go back to those thought spirals, those dark places. I swore that I would never put myself in those situations again. All the words that the Lord has spoken, we will do. Cycle after cycle, chance after chance. And yet you get to this painful, despairing place where you realize, I could have all the chances in the world, and eventually... I still blow it because the game is rigged and it was rigged ever since Adam. And the word that God gives us becomes all the more heavy because God is not a God of second chances. But honestly, would it help if he were? Is there any hope for this kind of problem? Problem of what Christians in the past call besetting sin or what Hebrews calls the sin that so easily entangles or frankly, Just the problem of being human. Yes, there is hope. But this is why we need Exodus to be set in its broader biblical context. The other lectionary reading for today is actually helpful. It helps us to see the Bible's intentional connection between Moses on a mountain and Jesus on a mountain. In Matthew 17... We have this account of Jesus and his transfiguration. And the similarities between Exodus and Matthew are way too striking not to notice. There's a cloud and a voice. There's a glowing face and a tremendous glory. So many things. But there's one key critical difference between Moses on the mountain and Jesus on the mountain. When Moses went down, he went down to give Israel the law of God. And they went for a do-over, only to blow it again, another time around the horn. But when Jesus came down the mountain, he didn't come down to give more law or a second chance. When Jesus went down, he walked straight to a cross, and he finished it for you and for me. Because Jesus, as God, knew the mind of God. And as one pastor once said to me, God is not a God of second chances. He's a God of one chance and a second Adam. It took Israel a biblical lifetime to understand this, and it may take you and I an eternal lifetime to internalize this, but God is not a God of second chances. He's a God of one chance and a second Adam. And it's in that word, and that word alone, when as an adult who went round and round and who felt like I fell into the same pit over and over again, it's in that word and that word alone where I'm finding God beginning to shatter, shatter my sin. Because every time I tried to deal with it, every time I tried to get serious about it on my own and to own it and to fix it, every time I attempted to say as a faithful disciple, all the words that the Lord has spoken, I will do. Don't you see? 
I was trying to save myself. I was saying, not Christ, but I. For you and for me, just like it was for Israel, second chances are bankrupt. We don't need a second chance. We need a second Adam. And his name is Jesus. And what Jesus offers to you and to me is infinitely better than a second chance. When Jesus died on the cross, he gave you this strong, sin-shattering word. By virtue of what I've accomplished in my life and my death, says the Lord, fear no more. You are forgiven. All your sins, past, present, and future, are wiped away forever, shattered, obliterated, pulverized. They are as dead to you and to God the Father as I was dead in the grave. And the sin that in this life you just can't shake, you just can't get rid of, that no longer defines you. I do. I define you. I am the perfect, spotless Lamb of God. And I say to you, the sins that you can't forget, God can't remember. So every time you find yourself in that place where you're caught with dirty hands, wallowing again in the filth of your own besetting sin, and the devil is trying to throw your guilt in your face, may the Holy Spirit fill your hands with the hammer of God, the word of God, to shatter the devil's mouth. As you say, when Jesus said it is finished, he meant it, and God isn't a liar. And it is no longer I who stand here before you, but Christ who lives in me. He is my salvation, and nothing can separate me from his love. So why don't you just go to hell? Because God is not a God of second chances. He's a God of one chance and a second Adam. But that second Adam, that Jesus Christ, he's all I need and he's my everything. Friends, there's so much hope and so much power in that word. I myself have found present freedom in that word. And I found my sin loosening its grip on me as I cling to that word. And I believe it can do the same for you. So my encouragement to you today is to throw yourself on that strong word and hang every hope upon him. He is mighty to save. Amen. You've been listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent. If you live in Birmingham or find yourself visiting, we hope you'll join us for one of our Sunday services. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org.